This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Boy, what a wonderful time of being together in God's presence. I hope you have um, noticed on purpose that the focus of our service this morning is Jesus. Not just Christianity, but Jesus in particular. And there really is no one like him in this morning. I want to invite you to a special service in which we investigate that. And we're going to have an awfully lot of fun with this. For those of you who are new to New Life, if you'll open up your program, on the inside of your program, you will find a sheet of notes that has words missing. That's just to make sure that you listen. Actually, no, that's not what that's for. It's to help you listen. How's that? Okay? You will not be given a test at the end. Okay, but we do want, we do assume that since you've come to church, you've come to learn. And so for the next several minutes, it'll be my privilege to guide you on a journey. Because as a church, we're kind of, well, we're on a field trip. And let me set the the stage for that field trip. Take a look at the screen. Let me read you three verses of Scripture. The first, they're all by Jesus. And Jesus said, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, I want you to look for a word that's common, you know, an important word that's common to all three of these. The second thing Jesus said is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the third verse, Jesus once again said, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What's the word that's common to all three of those? It's the word truth. And so as a church... We are on a field trip in searching for truth. Now, I just thought it would be very interesting to open up the dictionary and find out, I wonder how truth is defined. So here's here's the primary definition of truth out out of a typical dictionary. Truth is that which conforms to reality, actually exists, or has been verified. All three of those are very important. You see, there are some very, very important decisions that you're going to have to make in life, but none is more important than the context in which you're going to live your life. We have a word in English for that context. It's called worldview. And whatever worldview you choose, whether you're going to choose your life in in the context or worldview of being an atheist or the context or worldview of being a Christian or a Muslim or whatever else, whatever that choice is, it affects everything else about your life. And and you're going to see it affects even way more than that. Now that's a choice you can't afford to make by default. It's really a choice that you can't afford to put off to the end of your life. And so as a church... What we're doing is saying, okay, if this is the most important decision I'm going to make in my life, I would like to make that decision based on a foundation that conforms to reality. Because if you've ever made a decision that didn't conform to reality, somewhere along the line, it jumped up and bit you, didn't it? When you actually found out what reality was. We want to make that decision based in in conformity with things that actually exist. Not are just dreamed up. And we certainly want to do everything we can to verify 
that foundation to make sure that our lives are built on the truth. Now, the last two weeks, we've taken a look at Case for God, and, and last week we, look at, we looked at Case for the Bible. Let me give you a couple of resources that might help you. If, you. if you look on the inside of your little nutshell, which is the trifold thing in your program, about halfway down in the middle section on the front side, you will see a thing called Sermon Follow-Up, and there's an actual website there that you might want to go and look at because it takes a lot of the concepts and many more that I didn't talk about last Sunday, but a lot of the concepts I talked about last Sunday, and then it gives you, it gives you all the behind the scenes facts and a whole bunch more as well. So for those of you that are really into research and like to do that sort of thing, uh, I would suggest that. The second thing I'd like to suggest is this. It's called the Archaeological Study Bible. And, um, it happens to be one of my favorite, uh, study Bibles because, remember I told you last week, I'm a guy that needs a little evidence. I don't want to just believe something because some nice-sounding person said it was true. Well, this particular Bible, somebody has done, actually a whole lot of somebodies, have done countless hours of research. And there are, I think, 50,000 different articles in here that will give you archaeological facts that substantiate the history of the Bible. For instance, some of you have read the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Its principal character is, is a lady by the name of Esther who becomes queen of Persia. And her, um, her husband's name is Xerxes or Ahasuerus, depending upon... Uh, he, he actually had two different versions of his name. But, uh, and they lived in a city called Susa. So let me just read you a paragraph or two here, and you get the idea of, of the sort of historical substantiation that's found not only behind the Bible, but all throughout this Bible. Susa, and it says C-Map 8A, the city of the summer palace of Persian rulers is the setting for the book of Esther. Archaeological research conducted during the 1970s by a French team has uncovered many of the locations mentioned in the book. A particularly interesting find is the gatehouse mentioned in Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 2. The gatehouse, approximately 87 and a half yards east of the palace, was an imposing structure. It was almost 43.8 yards across, had a central room that was roughly 23 yards square, and it goes on to describe uh, that sort of thing. So if you like historical verification for virtually everything that's in the Bible, it's amazing. I told you that as, as we're undigging and unearthing the artifacts, they just continue to corroborate every story that's in the Bible. And so there's a lot of that stuff. If you want to get one of those, you can get one through our resource, etc. table out there. That's where I got that one. And actually, the paperback version is not very expensive, so it's probably money well spent. Now, let's talk about Jesus. If you're going to build your life on Jesus, how do you know that uh, He is who He said He was? How do you know that He's reliable? How do you know any of those things about Him? Well, there are many different whole fields of evidences 
And uh, some of them are about the historicity of Jesus and, and references to Him in secular history. And some are about the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But this morning, I'm, I'm choosing just to give you an object lesson. And so, we're going to have a lot of fun with this because, you know, some of the major decisions in life kind of self-select. Now, I, I hope that you didn't select your wife or your husband this way, okay? But here's what I mean, okay? Sometimes when you look at the viable options and you compare them, you look at them and you say, well, I'm not immediately drawn to any of them, but this one is definitely better than all the others, okay? But then occasionally, when you're doing research and you're left with a handful of options, you sit down and you compare those options, and the more you compare them, the more you realize that one of those options is in a class by itself. And there is no comparison. And when that happens, the decision is very easy because pretty much everything points that direction. I challenged you last week and said, if you get in and do, do the research about the Bible, you will see that it doesn't belong in that stack of books that are all the books of, of human origin but it belongs in a stack by itself because it really is. So this morning, we're going to take the four most influential spiritual leaders in the history of the world. Now, I did a little research on this, and approximately 60 billion people have ever lived in the history of the earth as far as we can tell. Of those 60 billion people, approximately 10% of them are living today. If you take all 60 billion people and you ask yourself only one question, what are the four, what are the names of the four most influential spiritual leaders out of all 60 billion people? You know, they would kind of self-select. They become very, very obvious. I want to talk to you about them today, and then I simply want to compare them. The first that I want to talk to you about would be a fellow by the name of Confucius. Okay? Uh, what was it we used to say as kids? Confucius. There you go. Everybody, virtually everybody's heard that. Let me give you a little background on Confucius. Confucius was born in China in 551 BC. His actual name was Kong Kui. So how did he become Confucius? Well, many, many years later, his name was Latinized, and it's a compound word. It comes from Kong, and then it comes from the word Fuzi, which means master teacher, or master or teacher, or both. Okay, And so it was put together, Kong Fuzi became Confucius to those of us who are more Latinized or Westernized. He was a social philosopher having encountered some very unethical treatment himself and, and, and being treated immorally and, and unethically, uh, he felt, he looked around him and he saw all sorts of that going on. And so he began to set about changing that in his culture. And at its highest influence, Confucianism influenced about 300 million people. 
There's no way you can talk about one of the top four without putting Confucius's name there. So this morning, we have a box for Confucius, and I'd like for you to welcome Vanna White. <laughs> okay, Bob will work, all right? The second person I want to talk to you about this morning is a fellow by the name of Buddha. And by the way, while I do these comparisons, please recognize that I speak with great respect for all four of them. Okay? All four of them, in their heart, really wanted to do good, and all four of them have. So I don't speak with any disrespect on any of them. Anyone who influences 300 million people is doing something, right? That's huge. Okay? Let's talk about Buddha. Buddha was born in 563 B.C. So you can see that Buddha and Confucius were contemporaries, although they lived worlds apart. For Confucius was born in China. Buddha was born in India. His actual name was not Buddha. His actual name was Siddhartha Gautama. That was his actual name. He was born into royalty, and his parents decided that because he was born into royalty, and of course India has for centuries, actually millennia, been a place of great poverty and great suffering, they decided that they would shield him from all suffering. And so he was never allowed to go outside the palace walls, and nothing negative was ever allowed to be in his presence. Well, one day he wandered outside the palace as an adult, and he could not believe what he saw. He was shocked by it, and he decided to reject his royal birth and, and the life of privilege that came with it, and he began to search for the cause and the cure for human suffering. In his studies and meditation, eventually he achieved what he called enlightenment, and his desire was to be able to pass that along to everyone that he met. Today, some 365 million people consider themselves Buddhists. There's no way that we cannot include him in one of the four most spiritually influential people. So we have a block for Buddha as well. The third person would be the person Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. Now, don't get those dates mixed up because the other guys were B.C. and Muhammad is A.D., so they were born about a 1,000 years apart. So Muhammad would have been born 570 years approximately after Jesus. He was, he was born in Mecca, which is in... Uh, present-day Saudi Arabia in uh, the Middle East. He was orphaned at a very early age, was raised for a while by his grandfather, but eventually mostly by his uncle. And at the age of 12, he began traveling with his uncle's caravan and was exposed to all sorts of history and culture and religions. He was an idol worshiper by heritage, but he rejected that as an adult and rejected kind of all forms of what he would consider paganism. And eventually, he formed his own religion. He received visions while he fell into trances. He founded the, the religion of Islam 
And today there are 1.2 billion people in our world who, who consider themselves Muslims. So we certainly have to have, we have to consider Muhammad in, um, by the way, Islam is a very fast-growing religion even in the United States of America. For instance, you might not have realized it, but there are actually more Muslims in the United States than there are Episcopalians. That's pretty hard to imagine. By the way, to give you some idea, let's take 300 million people that... Um, if you go back to Confucius and 360-some million people for Buddha, the approximate current population of the United States is just over 300 million people. So that'll give you some idea of, of perspective. Okay? Then, of course, the last person we will talk about this morning is Jesus. Uh, he was born in zero because most of the world gets its calendar from his birth. He lived only 33 years, much shorter than any of the other four or the other three. He claimed to be God in human flesh. He founded Christianity, and today a little over two billion people in our world claim to be Christian, or in other words, about one out of every three people in our world claims to be a Christian. So there you have it. There, there are the four gentlemen that we're going to talk about, and hands down, they have had more spiritual influence than anybody else out of the 60 billion people. Now, before I get into the actual comparison, uh, those of you who are really astute are going to say, wait a minute, what about Hinduism? That's a very good question. Okay, Hinduism has no founder associated with it. It has never had a single spiritual leader Hinduism, if you study its origin and derivation, is really the longest surviving, um, what shall I say, and really the most complex form of idol worship and paganism and pantheism that uh, this world has ever known. So you have to go into a study of its own if you're going to talk about Hinduism because it doesn't really have a spiritual leader. That's the only reason it's not up here. Okay, so... How are we going to compare these people? Well, if you're going to follow a spiritual leader, I think there are certain things that you would expect from a spiritual leader, especially a supernatural spiritual leader. So let's start with a basic thing, because the one thing that all four of these gentlemen are known for is they're all known for their teachings. If it were not for their teachings, we would never have heard of them. So let's start with their teachings, and let's start, first of all, with Confucius. I told you earlier that Confucius, uh, well, let me tell you how we're going to look at their teachings. We're going to look at the scope of what they taught. In other words, how much of life and eternity did they actually address in their teachings? And then we're going to look at the breadth of its impact. In other words, uh, how well accepted by the world and by what sector of the world. Okay. I told you earlier that Confucius was a social reformer. He wrote and collected statements of wisdom, and then he encouraged people to live according to those statements and according to that wisdom. He obviously was a great teacher because no one could influence 300 million people at one time. No one could do that without being a great teacher, without having something to say. 
However, Confucius never really addressed any of the issues of basic spirituality. For instance, he never addressed the issue of whether there was a God or wasn't a God. And what I was able to read in my research, he never addressed the issue of whether there was an afterlife or there wasn't an afterlife. He never addressed the issue of whether there's such a thing, a sin, for which all people are accountable for, or no sin. He simply looked at the way one human being treated another human being and said there are certain things about that that should be certain ways. And that has to do with morality and ethics. So I think if you consider the scope of what he taught about, he was very good, but it was very limited in its scope. And so I think for him, we could give no more than one quarter of a block for his, for his teachings because he left much of life really unaddressed. Let's take a look at Buddha. Now, first of all, you need to understand that Buddha was born into a Hindu system. I told you he was born in India, and, and he was born into um, uh, the Brahmin rank of, of Hinduism, which is the highest level. Um, well, just below that and eventually that as well. Now, um, he took most much of his teachings from Hinduism, but as he began to peruse the subject of suffering, and all of Buddhism is really about suffering, he reduced his teaching to four core teachings, and these are the four core teachings of Buddhism. Number one, life is suffering. Now, there would be certain cultures in which that would be hard to sell, okay? But if you, but if you were born in India, uh, virtually any time, it's not difficult to substantiate that life is suffering, okay? Secondly, he said all suffering comes from desire. It comes from human desire. Thirdly, suffering is eliminated by overcoming desire. In other words, if you could get all human beings to just quit desiring anything, then they wouldn't suffer anymore, okay? And eliminating desire was accomplished by following the Eightfold Path. So if you sign up to follow Buddha, basically what you're doing is you're saying to your spiritual leader, you teach me about the Eightfold Path, I'm going to live my entire life in the context of the Eightfold Path, and I'm going to believe at the end, I'm going to believe that, that all of my suffering will cease, and in fact, the whole concept of, of Buddhism kind of points to a, a thing called nirvana, which we'll talk about later. Buddha himself and his teachings comprise about 12,000 pages. However, he never addressed the existence of God. And the only thing he said about the afterlife was he carried on the, con the Hindu concept of reincarnation. So I think in fairness to Buddha, we have to give him more of a block than Confucius, so we'll give him half a block um, because he did address more than Confucius. Now, let's talk about Muhammad. Muhammad, the, the basic teachings of Muhammad are found in the Quran. He wrote it himself after the visions that he received while he was in a trance in, in this cave. Uh, he himself... Basically, all of his teachings can be reduced down to five core teachings. And here they are. Number one, Allah is the one true God. Okay, I shortened it in my notes. You got it there. All right, number two. Allah has many prophets, including Moses and Jesus, but Muhammad is the last 
and greatest of them all. In other words, Muhammad would certainly claim to be greater than Moses and Jesus and Abraham and the rest of them. And number three, the Quran is the supreme religious book in the world. Number four, there are many intermediate beings between God and man. Some of them are evil and some of them are good. And number five, upon death, a person's eternity will be determined by the deeds they have done. And basically, what he taught is that Allah is going to take your good deeds, put them on one side of the scale, going to take your bad deeds, put it on the other side of the scale, and whichever way the scale goes, that's where you go. That sounds familiar. We've talked about that before, right? Most of you had no clue that that came out of Islam. But that's really where that has its origin. All right? So those are the teachings of Muhammad. Now, certainly he, he addressed a broader scope than Confucius and even broader than Buddha because he for sure talked about God. He for sure talked about eternity and so forth. So uh, in, in terms of him, we have to give him at least three quarters of a block. Let's talk about Jesus. The one thing you must know about all three of those guys, and that is their teachings taught one thing, your life whether in this life or in the life to come, your life will be determined on your own merits and nobody else's. It's all yours. Okay? Jesus, now I recognize it's very difficult for a pastor to be objective about Jesus' teachings. Okay? So I admit that right up front. But just stating the facts, okay? Jesus addressed the entire scope of human existence. He didn't leave anything out. He talked about our origin. He talked about why we are here. He talked about eternal life. He talked about life after death. He talked about how people are supposed to treat each other. He talked about how people are supposed to relate to God. He talked about how God relates to people. He talked about the spiritual world. He talked about the physical world. He talked about the emotional world. He talked about every single aspect of humanity that you can possibly imagine in terms of the scope of his teaching. He left nothing untouched. Not only that, the laws and the guidelines that he gave, you, could, you would be hard-pressed to count the countries and the cultures who have taken their basic morality and carved their basic laws based upon the teachings of Jesus. Countless nations. His teachings have been published more than all of the other three gentlemen Put together, his teachings have been published and distributed around the world. I think, in all fairness to Jesus, he deserves at least one block. So we'll give him one. Okay, so far? Everybody on board? It's close. Let's take a look at the next category, moral life. Okay? If you're going to follow a spiritual leader, I think you would want that spiritual leader to live an exemplary life and show you how it's done. I know I would. So let's take a look at the moral lives of each of these guys. First of all, Confucius. Now, there's not a lot written about his moral life. There's a little bit written about it, but not a lot. But I think it's, a, it's safe to assume that he was at least better than average because he was a social reformer who cared about what took place in his life and other people's lives. However, 
He never claimed to live an exceptional life. And even his closest followers never revered him as anything other than just a good human being. So I think, in all fairness to Confucius, we'll give him a half a block for his moral life. Buddha. Buddha, I think I would give more because he rejected a life of privilege he could have lived in. He could have stayed in the palace, lived an easy life, but he rejected it. He went out to live with his fellow man. Uh, he lived a life of ter- terrific devotion. He, he cared about other people and he helped other people and he, he did a lot to benefit other people. And uh, it seems to me that uh, he would deserve at least a little bit more credit than Confucius because of those choices. So let's give him three quarters of a block. Now let's take the personal life of Muhammad. Unfortunately, this is where it gets a little awkward. You see, Muhammad himself wrote about his dark side and his tremendous struggles with personal darkness. Even his closest friends wrote about his dark side and how that it was scary. For instance, right in the Quran, it says that a man can have no more than four wives. Okay? Muhammad himself exceeded that a lot. But he said he received a special dispensation from Allah that made it okay. Okay, now I got a problem with that, all right? Not only that, Muhammad killed people who opposed him. That's one way, you know, we get to Jesus, he taught us how to deal with enemies, but it had never had the end of a sword involved in it. But Muhammad, Muhammad himself writes about it. His closest followers write about it. That, that he actually killed people who opposed him. And in his writings, he begged for forgiveness from Allah for many of the things that he had done. I think in all fairness, especially to Buddha and Confucius, we can give Muhammad no more than a quarter of a block for his moral life. There was definitely some problems there. Now let's take Jesus. There's no record of any sin in Jesus' life. None. In fact, Jesus stood right in front of His enemies one day as they were surrounding Him, and He asked them a question that no one in this room would dare ask anyone who knows them well. He said, Which of you accuses me of any sin, and if so, what is it? Anybody willing to take that test this morning? Now, if you came to church and on your back was a list of your worst deeds and you had to wear that to get in every Sunday, you know, this place would be empty. There would not even be a pastor here. And yet Jesus said, not to his friends and not to his closest families, but to his worst enemies. I'm open. What's the sin? Not in an egotistical way, but he wanted them to face the truth about his life. Now, even as he stood on trial shortly before his death, and they were trying to trump up charges against him, they couldn't find anybody who would testify against Jesus with any sort of evidence because, 
Well, when you start with perfection, it's real hard to find a flaw. So why was Jesus killed? What was His crime? Here's what it was. That He claimed to be God's Son. You know, it's pretty difficult when they put you to death for telling the truth, right? But that's all they could come up with. Now, to help us get some perspective on this, I want you to understand what perfection is. For those of you who are... It's spring training, isn't it? Okay, all you baseball buffs. I want to give you five names and somebody tell me what these guys are all connected with. Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds. Single season, home run record, and I'm going to throw another guy in there even though he never actually owned it, and that's Sammy Sosa. Okay? Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs in one season. Roger Maris hit 61. Sammy Sosa hit 66. Mark McGuire hit 70. And Barry Bonds hit 73. Do you realize how far from perfection they were? If Jesus had been Barry Bonds... 476 home runs in one season, not counting all the intentional walks and the rest of it. Not only that, if you had gone, if Jesus had been Barry Bonds back at Arizona State, you can't imagine how many thousands of home runs Jesus would have hit because he was perfection. And then you go back to Sarah High School down in San Mateo, and he would have hit a home run every time at the plate. And then you go back to Babe Ruth uh, baseball or Legion baseball and back to Little League and back to T-ball. Can you imagine the stir he would have caused in T-ball? <laughs> you know, sometimes we struggle. We, just can't, we have a hard time understanding what perfection is. And yet Jesus' moral life was perfect. I think in all fairness to Jesus, he deserves a double-sized block when it comes to moral life. Now, Leah, you think Jesus is winning? Let's go to miracle power. If you are going to follow a spiritual leader, and especially a supernatural spiritual leader, wouldn't you want this person to demonstrate that they can transcend the laws of nature? That they're not subject to all the same laws of nature that you and I are, but they're actually greater than the laws of nature? Well, this is where the comparison gets really easy. Because when it comes to miracles, if we go to Confucius, he never claimed to have any miraculous power. No miracles were ever, rec were ever recorded or attributed to him. It's just no case, no block. If you move to Buddha... Same identical thing. No, Buddha never claimed to have any miraculous power. No one ever attributed any miracles to his name. He was a human being just like you and just like me, subject to all of the natural laws that all of the rest of us are subject to. So no miracles, no block. When we get to Muhammad, same identical thing. Never claimed to have any supernatural power. 
never claimed to do a miracle. No miracles were ever attributed to his name. None were ever recorded in history. There's no case there. There's no miracles at all. Now when we get to Jesus, different story. You know, in his short lifetime, you know, Jesus lived 33 years, but only about three and a half of those did he do any ministry. And in only about three and a half of those did he do any miracles. In a three and a half year span of time, Jesus demonstrated that he transcended virtually every major category of, of natural law. In other words, I put in my notes, Jesus transcended the laws of nature at will. If he wanted to walk on water, he didn't look for stones under the surface, right? He just walked on water. If, if, if there was a shortage of food, Jesus could take a little boy's lunch and feed about 15,000 people with a little boy's lunch. If the storm was raging and people's lives were in danger, he could stand up and say to the winds and the waves and the rain, peace, be still. And he was still. A group of people went one day to push him over a cliff. And the Bible simply says he passed right through their midst. They got ready to push and all of a sudden there's nothing there. Jesus walked up to people who had been blind from birth and He gave them sight. He walked up to people who had been deaf and never heard a word or a sound in their life and enabled them to hear. He walked up to people who had atrophied and shrunken limbs that didn't work. And He spoke and that limb would, would be well and whole. He walked up to people who had never walked and made their legs perfect. He walked up to people who were dead and raised them. You know, when it comes to miracles, Jesus didn't just do one or two and amaze people with some tricks. There was nothing magic there was something supernatural. I think when it comes to miracle power, Jesus deserves a double-sized block as well. Let's go to prophetic power. Now, prophetic power is the ability to supernaturally see into people's lives. And I'm going to move a little quicker here to see into people's lives and the future. And by the reason I put the word supernaturally is because there are people who claim to be prophets. And it, what that means is they're like bookies in Las Vegas. It means that more than 50% of the time they're right. Okay? We're not talking about that. When you see supernaturally into someone's life or the future, it means you're perfect every time. Okay? All the way over to Confucius. Never claimed the power, never was accorded to him, no case, no block. Buddha, never claimed the power, never looked in anybody's heart and said, I know what you're thinking, never, never prophesied anything about the future, no case. Even when we get to Muhammad, 
There's only one or two predictions that Muhammad ever made that he ever wrote down, and they were both very general, and they were about what his troops were going to do in certain battles, and he predicted that they would win. But still, in fairness to him, I think we have to give him a quarter of a block because at least he stepped out and made a few predictions. On the other hand, Jesus regularly looked into people's hearts and lives. He knew what people were thinking. He saw into the future. He predicted his own death. He predicted that he would be betrayed. He predicted who the betrayer would be. He predicted uh, what city he would be killed in. He predicted the people who would actually kill him. He predicted how long he would be dead. He predicted when he would rise from the dead. In fact, if you were to list all of the prophecies Jesus made, we'd be here for a long time. And you know something? Every single one of them came to pass just as he said, and the ones that haven't come to pass yet are just waiting to happen because they will. I think when it comes to prophetic power, never been an equal. We'll give him another double block. Okay? Are you ready? Resurrection power. Now it does not take a rocket science to figure out where this is going to go, right? Resurrection power is the ability to raise himself from the dead. Buddha never claimed it, never addressed the subject, and today you can go visit Buddha's tomb. It's, it's accessible to you. He's, he's buried in a, in, a, I'm sorry, let's start with Confucius. Confucius is buried in the forest of Confucius. You can go visit that forest today. There's a mound there with a monument on the mound. Buddha, you can go to Buddha's grave, well, kind of. Depends upon who you, who you believe. Some believe that his remains were divided and sent to several um, uh, temples, Buddhist temples around the world in, in little vases called sittas. Uh, other people believe that he has an actual tomb. There's one, one temple that claims, no, this is where Buddha is buried. But the bottom line is, no one says Buddha raised himself. Okay, He never claimed it. No one ever recorded. So no case, no block. Muhammad, the same thing. You can go to Muhammad's tomb today. In fact, most Muslims make a pilgrimage to visit his grave because Muhammad himself never claimed to raise himself from the dead and no one ever said Muhammad would raise himself from the dead. So when it comes to resurrection power, he gets no block either. However, when it comes to Jesus, all right, when it comes to resurrection power, Jesus not only said he would raise himself, he said he would raise every single person who's ever lived. I think two blocks is a minimum of what we could give for someone who could not only raise himself, but actually actually raise everyone else. So, yes, we have some help, all right? Okay. We have one more category, and it's probably the most important category. And uh, let's talk about atoning power. Now, uh, next to atoning power, here's what it says. The ability and willingness to pay the penalty for our sins. I want you in parentheses or somewhere around there, I want you to write this word. It's the word Savior. Because that's literally what that word means. Confucius, if you went to Confucius and you said to him, hey, buddy, you seem to care about people. Would you take the penalty for all my sins? What do you think he'd say? Are you kidding? I had enough of my own, right? 
If you went to Buddha and said, Buddha, I know you're concerned about suffering and I don't want to suffer in the next life. So would you come and would you take the penalty for all my sins? And in your next life, would you pay for my sins? Because you believe in reincarnation, right? So would you kind of take all of my bad karma and, and, and eat it up in the next life? What do you think Buddha would say? It would be inconsistent with everything he taught. If you went to Muhammad and said, hey, Muhammad, would you be my savior? Would you pay the penalty for my sin? Would you purchase for me forgiveness from the God you worship? He would have said, I can't do that. (laughs) I've got my own dark side. I beg for my own forgiveness. I can't do that. Do you know what the Bible says? I want to read it to you straight from God's Word. Here it is in 1 John chapter 2. My dear children... I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father, Jesus Christ. The one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sins of all the world. You know, Jesus... I think deserves. If there's a way I could give him the biggest block for this, I would. But we'll give him one more double-sized block. I want to ask you one question before we close. Remember I said sometimes when you compare things, they kind of self-select? I want you to look. If you were going to follow a spiritual leader and you were going to live your entire life in the context of what they taught and you were going to trust them not only with this life, but you were going to trust them with your eternity, who would you choose? See, sometimes the truth is obvious. And I say that with the deepest respect for the other three guys. They were wonderful human beings, but they are not a Savior. That's the difference. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that You came to earth and demonstrated in virtually every way that we can imagine that You're not human. And we are so blessed that You chose to be our Savior. We thank You and we praise You. In Your own great name we pray. Amen. As Bob comes out, I want to read you one more passage of Scripture. This is why the Bible says this. In view of this, God elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him a name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day, you and I and Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad will all bow before Jesus. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. 
You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.